Well, happy Easter. Uh, Sarah and I really miss you, and we so wish that we could be celebrating the resurrection together in person. But welcome to Prodigal Church's first Easter service online. Um, This past Wednesday night, the TV show Modern Family had its series finale. And the show ran for 11 years, and Sarah and I have watched every episode. Most episodes we've watched multiple times. And Wednesday night, you know, it was an emotional night in our house. Now, my favorite character is Phil Dunphy. Uh, And early on in the show, just when they first started filming this, Phil tripped on a staircase and he said, gotta fix that step. Now, in several times every season, they make a scene where Phil is rushing up the stairs and he trips on it and says, I gotta fix that step. 11 years of tripping on the same stair. We are a lot like Phil Dunphy. Uh, We say we're going to do something later, but later becomes never. Teachers know this. A student says, I'll do that assignment or that extra credit next week. And we all know that that assignment isn't getting done. And so here's a quick thought experiment that you guys can do at home from your couch or wherever you're watching this. Picture yourself in your high school bedroom, okay? Whatever music you listened to back then, it's playing on a CD player. Maybe it's playing on a boombox. For some of you, it's, it's a record player, okay? Okay, is everybody there? You're, you're in your high school bedroom. Okay, you're on your bed, and a voice from the kitchen calls out to you over the music and asks you to do some kind of chore or something. What do you yell back? I'll be right out in a minute. I did it last time. I- I'm busy. Now, In a very real sense, you are still that teenager. Except your distractions are no longer video games or MTV or talking on the phone with your friends. No, your distractions are money, addictions, misplaced priorities. And the voice you hear is not your mom or dad calling from the kitchen, but the voice of your creator. He's not asking for a chore. He's asking for you. This Easter... I just have this knot in my spirit because I really believe that God is calling you to do something. And for so many of us, later becomes never when it comes to God. So even now in your, in your house, in your living room, are you sensing that God is calling you to something? And my prayer for you this season, and even my prayer for you during this service, is that something will awaken in you so that later doesn't become never. Now let's go back to 2,000 years ago, to the very first Easter. And perhaps we might rediscover what God might be calling us towards. Stories found in all four Gospels, but we're going to look at the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, the Gospels tell the story of women being the first to discover the empty tomb. And in first century Palestine, women were seen as second-class citizens. They were seen as lesser than a man. In fact, in a court of law, if a criminal stole a horse and the only person who witnessed this crime was a woman, he would get off scot-free. A woman's testimony would be discounted. 
And this first century reality makes the gospel account all the more astounding, right? These disciples are writing down what happened on that very first Easter. They didn't make themselves look better than they actually were, and they didn't fabricate the story to make it more believable to its early hearers, the early audience, saying maybe that they were the first ones to get to the empty tomb. No, if the gospel accounts are lies, if they're made up, if they're fabrications, there's no way in the world that they would write that the first people on the scene was a woman. The only reason a first century author would include this in their gospel was because that is in fact what actually happened. And it's beautiful that women were the first to the empty tomb. Look at verse 2. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where they have put him. Again, this is some honest storytelling, okay? Mary doesn't say that he's resurrected, he's alive, the tomb is empty. No, she thought what everybody else thought, that grave robbers must have came in and took the body. And his disciples didn't understand it either. They all doubted what was going on. They expected Jesus to do what dead people always do, stay dead. Nobody, not even his closest followers, not even the most committed among them, expected resurrection. Nobody was standing outside the tomb Easter morning, counting down from 10, 9, 8, cue the sun, 7, 6, okay, cue the epic soundtrack, and then the fog, 5, no, no, that didn't happen. Why? Because every single person who loved and was devoted to Jesus thought that he wasn't coming back. Verse 3 says this, So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So John tells us that Peter and the other disciple both started running for the tomb. But the other disciple, and John is talking about himself, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Interesting detail that John the disciple includes here, that he outran Peter I've always loved that detail because I'm John and my twin brother is Peter. And we have been competing and racing against each other for the past 39 years. Uh, Whether it was baseball in the front yard, competitions in the pool, street fighter two, late nights on the living room floor, we would always compete. And over the years, more often than not, he would win. But here, On the very first Easter, the Bible says very plainly that John won, okay? So Pete, put that in your Easter egg basket and eat it, okay? Chew on that one. Now, when John the disciple wrote this gospel, Peter was already, he'd been martyred, okay? So John probably chuckled when he included this detail, okay? He thought to himself, well, Pete's not here. He's not going to get embarrassed. So I'm going to say, I'm going to tell everyone that I'm faster than he is. But like Usher, If I'm going to tell it, then i got to tell it all. Because the next part of the story, John makes Peter look good and makes himself look bad. Look at verse 5. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. See, John went to the tomb. He looked in. He saw the strips there. But he was like, i got to be honest, I didn't go in. And why didn't he go in? Well, it was dark. It was a tomb. It was scary. My two-year-old daughter, Ivy, at least once a week, when she should be sleeping, she'll yell for me. 
And I'll go in a room and I'll say, what? And she points to her closet and she goes like this. Like she's scared. So then I walk over to the closet. I open up both of the closet drawers and, and make sure that there's nothing in there. And I tell her, there's nothing in there, baby girl. Go to bed. I kiss her goodnight. She's scared because it's dark. John the disciple includes this in his own narrative. It makes himself look bad. He admits that he bent over and he looked, but he didn't go in. It's such honesty, right? He's, he's, there's no, he's not a hero. He, he's just as confused as all the other disciples. If John was making up the story of the resurrection, uh, he surely wouldn't make him look this bad. Look at verse 6. Then Simon Peter arrived, finally, and he went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there. While the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. So he writes, then eventually Peter shows up. Okay, finally, slow Pete. John was first. Pete eventually got there. And then, unlike John, Peter went straight into the tomb. John's like, I gotta tell it all. I peeked in. Peter rushed in. He got me there. I'm faster than he is, but he's braver than I. And Peter saw the strangest thing. The linens of Jesus' body were wrapped up and folded. What's up with that? If there were disciples or grave robbers who took the body, they would not have taken the time to fold the linens and the face cloth just to carry away a naked body. Even more, the other gospel writers say that the spices were also left. Why would a grave robber leave the most expensive items and just take the body? Verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 8, finally the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. See, John eventually goes into the tomb himself. It seems as though the courage of Peter inspired the courage of John. That is how it is meant to be for Christians. We are to inspire one another because some days we're like Peter conquering fear and pursuing Jesus and we rush into that tomb and sometimes we are like John tiptoeing around the entrance of the empty tomb peeking in but overcome with our own fears then the text says that John and Peter head back to where they were staying they're going to regroup and figure out the next step. Okay, does, this empty does this empty tomb change everything? These disciples have spent the last three and a half years following Jesus. And now they're trying to figure out what's next. Now, I know that in this season, most retail stores are closed. But, but I do have a theory, theory that, that there are three, three basic, basic kinds of shops. shops. The first is the person who says, says, I want that and I'm going to get it no matter what. Okay, that might be you. That might be the person sitting next to you. I want that no matter what, I'm going to get it. Then there's the person that says, I want that, but not at that price. Then there's the person that first looks at the price and then decides whether or not he or she wants that. Which are you? Which one am I? Well, I'm picturing my wife Sarah and I shopping. She tries on a sweater. She says, what do you think? And my response is, how much does it cost? 
And she says, oh, it's only $15. And I say, you never looked so good in all of your life. You look better now than you did even on your wedding day. But it, it, then she said, no, I read it wrong. I'm sorry, it's $150. Well, now that I see it in the light, it kind of takes away from your natural beauty, okay? I, I'm going to count the cost before making the purchase. The price matters to me. And the disciples here are counting the cost of staying committed to the teachings of Jesus, one of which is loving your enemy, which would mean the Romans who just nailed Jesus to the cross. The disciples are counting the cost. They just witnessed firsthand what happens when you follow Jesus in calling out religiosity and when you follow Jesus as Lord, not Caesar as Lord. You get crucified. You get nailed to a cross and put in a tomb. And to go back to our initial question, what is God calling you to? And as a pastor, as, as, a, as a preacher, at this point, I'm supposed to tell you during this service to respond to God's call in your life. And I'm supposed to bring conviction. Now, today, at this moment, today is the day of salvation. I just want to let you guys know, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell you to do the opposite. I'm going to tell you to count the cost. Don't make an emotional decision. Make a wise decision. Count the cost. Seek wise counsel. Pray, and then pray some more. And I don't know where you're going to land on what you may think God might be calling you towards, but I am convinced that there's no better place to be than in the will of God. So I'm not asking you to put this off so that later becomes never. I'm saying count the cost. And count the cost of not following God's way in this. And you'll find that it'll be much greater. See, we never do this. We never pause and think deeply about the trajectory of our lives. You and I were raised in a modern world that taught us to work hard, to be productive, to show up on time, give our best. We learned at an early age that our grades in high school mattered because that's what colleges look at. And our work in college mattered because we knew that's how we were going to get a good job. And our hard how hard we worked during those first jobs determined how fast we would climb the ladder and get ahead in our careers. And so for many of us, that's what we did. We've been schooled in the work to get more lifestyle. We put in the hours and saved our money, stayed late at the office because that's what one was supposed to do to be successful. But all of that left us missing something. And now in this season of quarantine, we see that those are just distractions from the real life we're called to live. I read this quote this week. I think it's sadly true for many of us. First, I was dying to finish high school and start college. Then I was dying to finish college and start working. Then I was dying to marry and have children. Then I was dying for my children to grow old enough for school so I could return to work. Then I was dying to retire. And now, I'm just dying. And suddenly I realize I forgot to live. Perhaps you too have found yourself in the haze of life. We've had a full schedule without a full heart. 
when the telegraph was the fastest means of long-distance communication, a young man applied for a job as a Morse code operator. In answering an ad in the paper, he went to the address listed, and when he arrived, he entered a large, noisy office. And in the background, a telegraph clicked away. And a sign on the reception's counter instructed job applicants to fill out a form and wait until they were summoned to enter the inner office, the second door. And the young man completed his form, sat down with seven other applicants, and after a few minutes, the young man stood up, crossed the room to the door of the inner office, and walked right in. And the other applicants kind of perked up, wondering what was going on. Why had this man been so bold? And they muttered among themselves, because they hadn't heard any summons yet, and they took a little bit more than just a tiny bit of satisfaction uh, that this young man who would walk in and then walk out reprimanded because he didn't wait his turn. And within a few minutes, the young man emerged from the inner office, escorted by the interviewer, who announced to the other applicants, gentlemen, thank you very much for coming, but the job has been filled by this young man. And the other applicants began grumbling. One spoke up and said, wait a minute, I don't understand something. He was the last to come in here, and we never even got a chance to get interviewed, yet he's the one who gets the job? And the employer said, I'm sorry, but all the time you've been sitting here, the telegraph has been ticking out the following message in Morse code. If you understand this message, then come right in. The job is yours. None of you heard it or understood it. This young man did, so the job is his. Are you in the waiting room waiting for your name to be called? Are you in your high school bedroom with distractions so loud and your door locked that you cannot hear the voice of the one who is calling out to you? Will later become never? You see, the resurrection of the Son of God is true. Mary Magdalene testified. John testified. Peter testified. Saints across the ages have testified. And I am testifying to you today. Disneyland might be empty. NBA arenas might be empty. Casinos in Las Vegas might be empty. But nothing is more empty than the tomb of the risen king. It's still empty. He is risen and he's calling you. Will you respond? Some of you need to hear this, that, that Easter means that the worst thing is never the last thing. That's, that's what's true about the Easter story. The worst thing. Humanity nailing their own creator to a rugged cross. An innocent man being crucified. And forgiving people with his last dying breath who are doing it to him. Worst thing is never the last thing. And some of you who are going through some of your worst moments of your life right now, the worst thing is never the last word in Jesus. The resurrection story isn't only about what Jesus did, it's about what Jesus does. He's always bringing life to dead places. Will you allow him to do that? Easter means that the worst thing is never the last thing. Let's pray. God, we pray in Jesus' name for those who are watching, who are going through some of the worst days, and they're questioning, God, where are you? The enemies are winning. God, I pray that, that they would find hope in you, hope in the resurrection. In Jesus, we pray that we would be awa awoken anew 
in your love. God, we thank you for the Gospels. We thank you that these flawed people wrote down this amazing, incredible story of your life and your teachings and your example and your resurrection. And so, God, I pray that we would live our life with everything inside of us to follow you. God, let the distractions fade away in Jesus' name. And let this be the best Easter of our lives. And let today and this day beyond be the best life you've called us to lead. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship the King of Kings together.